1: A science story, huh? These
0: NYU scientists—they uh, felt, felt, I, felt, I, felt right. Right. But I was so happy. I just happy. Thought, oh, well. I figured well. out. It was that tall. golden moment because science was on my
2: side. <laughs> Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, and today I'm joined by what may be a familiar voice for longtime listeners.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider. I'm Ben Lilly. Haven't done that in ages. Hello.
2: Oh, you can't have your job back. <laughs>
1: well, reflex, reflex.
2: Welcome, Ben Lilly, Story Collider co founder and the original host of this podcast. Can you believe it's been 11 years?
1: I mean, after this last year, I just assumed it had been 20, but I'll take 11. Um, no, I can't. It's uh, I have no sense of time anymore, uh, but 11 is a lot. I genuinely couldn't remember when we were setting this up if it was 11 or 13. I don't know where I came up with 13.
2: I like that you knew it was one of those two numbers.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was an odd number. That's how I remember things.
2: Ben and I just got done celebrating 11 years of Story Collider, yesterday's first annual Proton Prom fundraiser. Thanks so much to everyone who attended and especially to everyone who donated so generously. When you think back over the past 11 years, Ben, what are some of the stories that stand out in your mind?
1: Jesus. Um, well, okay. Yeah, that's a story. Um, but, uh, there's, I mean, I, you know, there's been so many, I, I think when I was thinking about this, the thing that stands out that I always loved was the range. So you've got very very funny stories and then very intense and heartfelt stories and sometimes they're the same story but um, I do love that that like wide range of, of emotion uh, that goes along with it and so um, I, I was thinking about like on the funny side just the ones that I find myself telling people about over and over again um, there's a bunch but I I always come back to the one that Sad Sarwana did where he is a I, I don't know how to talk about this without ruining it, if you haven't heard the story. But basically, he's a Pakistani man, uh, grew up in the U.S., But uh, and he was you know a nerd, physicist, and early 2000s, he had gotten himself a GPS card, which was a big deal then. So he went outside to try to um, set it up, because, you know, early technology. Um, and I guess it was laundry day, so he was wearing... On Lando Day, he tends to wear more traditional Pakistani garb, and it turns out he was across the street from a synagogue. So here's a Muslim man waving a weird piece of technology around, probably swearing at it. Um, and so the next day, the FBI showed up, and I won't, uh, I won't spoil it for you, except to say some of the absolute funniest lines I've heard are in that story. It ends well, obviously. It's, we wouldn't be talking about it as funny if it wasn't. But um, yeah, that is in it. it it's just an absolute collision of different worlds. Um, and Sod is a, a great comic and a chemist?
2: A physicist, physicist. actually.
1: Jeez. Yeah, I should know that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Sod's shared a few stories on our podcast by this point, including last week, including sharing a story uh, at last night's Proton Prom. But that one really sticks in my memory. I agree. It's so funny and yet so harrowing yeah. at the same time, yeah. which I always love.
1: Um. It was great. And then sort of on the other end, there's, there's, I mean, if you go for the really like sort of gut-wrenching ones, oh my goodness, speaking of gut-wrenching, I just remember, didn't we do one where Anna um, Rothschild went on a date with someone and like made him feel her herniated stomach or something like this?
2: Yeah, that was a fan favorite.
1: Yeah literal literal, gut-wrenching um no but if you talk about the the gut-wrenching ones there's so many um and the the ones that that tend to stick in my mind are where a senior researcher usually these tend to work best in, for this particular genre um has some aspect of their research deeply connected to whatever's going on in their personal life and so there was a you know rachel yehuda's one about looking at um passed down holocaust memories and inherited trauma is incredible um and then the, again the one that's one i talk to people about a lot and then also um sarah Schlesinger, who's um oh goodness dean at rockefeller is she still dean there i don't actually know but she was um when she told this story um she's an immunologist so relevant
2: yeah in fact before you say any more we're gonna go ahead and share that story with everyone in today's episode Our first story today is from immunologist Sarah Schlesinger. It originally aired on our podcast in June 2014.
0: Hi. So 37 years ago, when I was 16, I came through the gates of the Rockefeller University, where I work every day now for the very first time. I had never heard of the place, even though it had been on 66th Street and York Avenue, and I'd probably walked by it more times than I could have counted, but I never knew what was behind those gates. My high school biology teacher had given me tickets to what were called at the time, the Christmas lectures. They're now called the holiday lectures, which are these amazing lectures by world-class scientists, many of whom were Nobel laureates for high school students. And I had the great privilege of hearing Dr. Christian de Duve, who had just been awarded the Nobel Prize for discovering the microanatomy of the cell. And this was the, the hottest science going. And he took a room full of high school students on what he called a tour of the inside of the cell for two days. And I was completely amazed. And I had always, I had thought before that, that I wanted to be a scientist, but this completely nailed it for me. But I was 16 and I was expected to get a summer job. And I thought, well, this would be a really cool place to get a summer job. So I came home, I told my parents, and my parents sort of nicely nodded at me and they said, fine, knock yourself out, get a summer job there. And I guess, so this would have been the day after Christmas was the lecture and my mother went to a New Year's party. And just by a series of coincidences, she was talking to a friend of hers who said, this friend had a friend whose husband, since he was a scientist, and just by coincidence, he worked at the Rockefeller University. So my mother came home and told me this, you know, sort of odd coincidence here. We'd never heard of this place. In a week's time, we'd heard of it twice. So I said, her, can you get me his phone number so I can call him and see if he'll hire me for the summer? And I don't think ever again in my life would I've had the nerve to just pick up the phone and call some stranger and ask them to hire me. But I was committed to getting a summer job there, and this seemed like my best opportunity. So I called Ralph Steinman, who I'd never met before, nor had I ever heard of, and he was extremely nice to me. He talked to me a couple of times on the phone between January and Valentine's Day. He said, if you don't hear from me by Valentine's Day, call me back. And he, I think, determined that I was, you know, with it enough to allow me to work in the lab. But he was then, then, as he always was, very frugal. He said to me, well, you know, we can't pay you, but we can give you meal tickets for the cafeteria, and will pay for your train ticket to come to work. What he didn't know was I would have paid him for the opportunity. So I started to work beside him at the bench, and this was 1977. He had just discovered the dendritic cell. So this is a cell in the immune system that orchestrates all the other cells. It's called an antigen-presenting cell. Ralph liked to refer to it as the conductor of the immune orchestra. It teaches all of the other cells in the body how to respond to viruses, bacteria, pollen, or even your own cells. But his discovery was highly controversial, and for a whole bunch of technical reasons that aren't that interesting, many, many, many people, virtually everybody, didn't believe that it existed. The cells are extremely rare, and they're extremely fragile, and it was very hard for anybody to replicate his work. But I, of course, had no dogma in my head about what should or shouldn't be, and so I was able to see the data he presented before me, and I believed him. So I kept working for him in the lab every summer and every January through high school and college and then medical school. And I never really thought about it as a job because it was so so specific to what he did. But... As my career moved on, his discovery became accepted. There were a whole bunch of technical adv- advances that occurred that allowed other people to replicate his work and for the technical aspects of it to become easier to execute. And f- going from being sort of a pariah and you know, he would leave lab meeting and people would whisper behind his back, you know, he's chasing an artifact and people advised me not to work with him because it was a waste of my time. All of a sudden he became the center of a new field of immunology, dendritic cell biology. And I don't know how many of you have heard of dendritic cells, but when my kids were going to high school, their standard high school biology texts had dendritic cells in them, which was an amazing thing for me. So as my career progressed and Ralph's career progressed, knowing about dendritic cells became useful. And in the mid-90s, I had the opportunity to have my own lab working on these cells with regard to HIV vaccines. And I took the opportunity and thus began, began my grown-up collaboration with Ralph. I was in Washington at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. And there, even though all I did was work in the lab, because I am an MD, I was required to learn all about clinical development and how to do clinical trials and how to deal with the FDA. I never wanted to do it. But I was working for the Army, and even as a civilian, when they tell you what to do, you do it. And I continued to this, this very fruitful collaboration and friendship with him. In 2001, I went through a very messy divorce, and I had four boys who ranged in age from seven to 14, and all I wanted to do was move back to New York, both to my home, where my family was here in Brooklyn, and also to my home lab, back to work with Ralph. And timing was really, again, very fortunate for me because Ralph's discoveries had reached the point where it was was beginning to be thought that they could be moved from the laboratory into the clinic and they could be used for several things, including vaccines and cancer immune therapy. Because remember, these are the cells that make the immune system either get activated or get quiet down. And so Ralph wanted to start to do this kind of work and I had learned the skills necessary to do it. So I came back to help him do this. We got a big grant from the Gates Foundation and started on working on on the first vaccine to prevent HIV that directly targets dendritic cells. And so this was my project and it was an amazing time and everything was going along swimmingly. We had money, things were going well in the lab. Ralph went to a meeting in Colorado, and he came back, and he was yellow. Well, being yellow, bright yellow, is a very bad sign. It's what's called jaundice, and it's a sign that the liver is failing, and that that means that all of the bile salts are backing up into the skin and the eyes. And I knew immediately when I saw him that something dreadful was going on. (laughs) It turned out that I was right. And Ralph, in fact, had pancreatic cancer. He had a grapefruit-sized mass at the head of his pancreas. And as many of you know, and probably most of you know, pancreatic cancer is a dismal diagnosis. 97% of people who have what he had would expect to be dead within a year. So all of a sudden, everything changed. And In addition to having such a grim prognosis, there's very little good standard therapy, hence the grim prognosis. So after Ralph was diagnosed, he assembled the group of us that were closest to him in his office. And he basically explained that he understood, better than probably anybody, he's also a physician, that this was a grim diagnosis. And though he was willing to engage in all of the standard therapy, it was very unlikely to really make a big difference. And so he saw this, as an opportunity to be his grand experiment. He wanted immunotherapy of his own design based on his dendritic cells. So we all got to work. And the way it works to do a clinical trial or or clinical experiment takes a very long time. So we had to piggyback on things that were already started by our colleagues. And because Ralph, though I don't think I mentioned it, was a wonderful and warm and caring human being, people came forth literally from the four corners of the earth, offering whatever clinical resources they had, protocols that were open, ideas, vaccines to help him. And so we started to have these meetings in his office. And I'm trained as a pathologist, which is a kind of doctor who deals with making diagnoses in tissue. So my responsibility was to understand what we needed to do with the tissue when it was removed at the time of surgery how it needed to be divided up to maximize the various opportunities that existed so i had a notebook and i had a list and other colleagues who were more expert in other more scientific matters than i we would go into this meeting and i would take notes and i would be keeping my list and so when it got close to the operation i was everybody else had left and i assembled my pile of papers and I'm kind of clumsy and I was nervous as it was. And I said to Ralph, I said, you know, so I know, you know, I know we're going to do this, so we're going to do this, so we're going to do this. I said, who's actually going to treat you? Who's going to administer the vaccines to you? And he looked at me and he said, I'd like you to do it. And I was overwhelmed because I, first I was honored that he wanted me to do it. And then I was a little sick at the thought of doing it. But he said to me, look, you don't have to do it if you don't want to. Think about it overnight. And I said, no, no, I want to do it. At this point, I didn't really think it was going to make any difference. But I knew that he thought it was going to make a difference. And so I wanted to give my teacher the comfort of knowing that he had done everything that he could. And I wanted to give myself that same comfort so I did think about it overnight and I came back and I said of course I'll do it. I reminded him that I wasn't, you know, that I didn't wasn't an oncologist and he said of course he knew that. He was always irritated at me when I pointed the, out the obvious. And he reminded me that he trusted me and frankly he knew that I would do what he said, that I would follow his scientific direction and not try to substitute my own. And that frankly led to our first argument, <laughs> because he was the consonant scientist and an absolute purist. And he had trusted in his cells when nobody else had. And he wanted to do an experiment that was going to be reportable. So he wanted to do a treatment and then wait four weeks and do the next one. And I and my colleagues realized that if he waited four weeks and something didn't work and the tumor came back, that would be it. We were going to be lucky if we were going to be able to keep the tumor from growing back, let alone you know address it if it came back. So, despite all of my arguments about his health and his life, a smarter colleague said to me, "Look, Ralph," said to him, "Look, Ralph, you're an n of one. It's only a case report, no matter how good the data is. <laughs> so only it's not going to have statistical significance. So only with that argument was he willing to concede that we could do each treatment one right after the other, and we did." But before we could start, we had to have all of the appropriate regulatory permissions. And so I went to see um, Emil Gotchlik, who is the head of our IRB, our Institutional Review Board, who was responsible for all of this. And I told him what had happened, and he gave me his condolences. And then we got to work, and I explained the situation and what Ralph wanted and what I wanted. And he said to me, well that's all fine, but I have to be sure that you want to be doing this and you're not being pushed into it. Do you want to be doing this? And I said, well, I don't want to be doing this, but if anybody has to be doing it, I want it to be me. And then he said to me the hardest words that I heard during this period, he said, you know, no matter how good a job you do, no matter how hard you work, this is likely not going to end well. And I assured him I understood Though at the time, I really didn't. So we then proceeded on our journey of eight clinical trials, three different vaccines, two that were made of Ralph's own dendritic cells that he had discovered, and one that targeted his dendritic cells. And Ralph lived four and a half years. He saw a daughter married. He saw two grandchildren born, and he was awarded the Lasker award, which is sometimes known as the American Nobel, but anybody who has a Nobel Prize will tell you there is no equivalent to the Nobel. (laughs) And so four four and a half years after his diagnosis, he started to get sicker and sicker. And all of those, all of us who had thought that maybe Ralph was right and maybe this was really going to work, were profoundly disappointed And over the summer of 2011, he got weaker and weaker, and he started to make arrangements for what would happen to the lab and what would happen um, to the rest of us when he was no longer with us. And in the end of September, it was just too much for him. He had fought valiantly, and he decided that there was no winning, and in his own inimitable way, he became impatient for the whole thing to be over. And so he you know, retired with his family and was surrounded by his loving family, he passed away very peacefully at the end of September. Now he died on a Friday morning and, no, I'm sorry, he died Friday night to Saturday morning. I got a call from his daughter on Saturday morning saying, you know, his, her father had passed away peacefully with his family and asking me not to tell anybody. They told me and one or two other people, but they wanted to be private just for that weekend. The community in which we work, because we work so hard in so many hours, all of our colleagues, are, or many of our colleagues are our close friends. Not all of our colleagues, but they're <laughs> close friends amongst our colleagues. And so to tell one person would alert the community, and they just wanted to be by themselves. They had been through hell and, and not back. So I said, well, can I come and see you? And they said, please just let us be. I said, can I send food? And they said, yeah, that you can do. So I sent food, and I spent the good part of the weekend planning with my closest colleagues how we were going to tell the lab and how we were going to break the news to the various people we had to tell, and then what we would do. And I was dreading going to work Monday and telling everybody. So I was, didn't sleep well Sunday night, and about 5.45 in the morning on that Monday morning, my cell phone rang, and I had gotten in the habit of leaving it on and by my bed in case they needed me for something I never knew what. My phone rang, it was Ralph's daughter, and I picked up the phone, and I was in that sort of like half sleep, where you asleep, are you awake, are you dreaming, is this real? And I still hadn't processed that he had passed away. So I pick up the phone, I hear her voice, and she said, Dad won. I'm like, honey, didn't your dad die? And she said, yeah, 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 he died, but he won. The Nobel committee is calling us and emailing us and we don't know what to do. Now you have to remember, in addition to being the the ultimate prize, there's a strict rule that the Nobel prize cannot be awarded posthumously. It can only be awarded to a living scientist. So the Nobel Committee, like everybody else in the world except the three of us, assumed he was still alive. So I said, Alexis, I don't know what to do. I'll call the university and we'll find out. So I called the people at the university. They got in touch with the president, and then it got taken out of my hands, blessedly. And there was a bit of a controversy for that morning as to whether he would be able to keep the prize. And the Nobel Committee convened, and I, I've subsequently learned from, from the people on the committee, they consulted with their lawyers, and they decided that it had been given in good faith, assuming he was alive. And the, the, the rules allow it to be awarded to a live person, even if they don't live to see the, the ceremonies, which are in December. So they used that construct to allow him to keep the prize. So we'll never know if Ralph's, the dendritic cells that Ralph received, prolonged his life. Clearly, he lived way beyond what one would have expected, even under the best of circumstances. He believed fervently that they did. I'm not sure whether they did or not, and I'll probably never be sure. But his technology, dendritic cells have been approved for a treatment for prostate cancer, which you can see advertised on television if you watch golf for the 6 o'clock news. <laughs> really, you can. And I sometimes see it, and I get so excited. Um, so they have moved forward from the lab to a clinical treatment for, for prostate cancer. And our vaccine trial that we started back and thinking of in 2001 is now fully enrolled, And we have the results. Forty-five people received the vaccine. that was an idea in Ralph's head. And they've made good responses to HIV, good, strong, protective responses. It's just the first phase of a trial, so we won't know if they're protected. But that would have been what he would have wanted more than anything. So, though Ralph never saw that, and he didn't even ever know he won the Nobel Prize— I had the great pleasure of watching his beautiful wife, Claudia, accept the prize in his behalf in Stockholm in 2000, December of 2011. And more than anything, Ralph was right. Thank you.
2: Sarah Schlesinger sharing a one-of-a-kind story that was recorded in 2014 in Littlefield in New York City so Ben what was it about Sarah's story that was so impactful for you
1: I mean it's just the almost Shakespearean way it played out um, you know with the using his own research to to attempt to treat his cancer I also love that it's she didn't like you know she's a very good scientist and so she gets to the the bit at the end, she's like, he always thought it helped treat his cancer, but eh, I don't know. We didn't actually do a real step like, you know, that that moment of like, she genuinely doesn't know if it helped or not. Um, and I really like that, keeping that in there. And then I think the, what elevates it and really makes it stick in, in my head is the coda. I don't know if you'd call it a coda, but the bit with the Nobel Prize is just like that extra bit. It's just like, oh, even more. Yeah. Um, you know, I always love stories that build and build. And just when you think you've hit the, the end, oh, there's this whole other thing coming in.
2: For those who don't know, uh, Ben stepped back from daily operations at Story Collider a few years ago when he opened Caveat, a premier venue here in New York City that has hosted Story Collider and many other shows like Story Collider that blend comedy or drama with science or history. And in fact, Caveat hosted last night's first annual Story Collider Proton Prom. This past year has obviously been a difficult time to be running a New York City venue or a venue anywhere, for that matter. But I'm so excited that Caveat has made it through and is reopening. What has that process been like?
1: It's been fun and rainbows. Um, I, no, it's been awful. Uh, you know, there's the right. When you hear this, we will probably know the answer to this question. We'll definitely know the answer to this question. But uh, right now, I don't know if we're getting a big grant from the government to help us keep going so we're either opening on a raise within budget or we're reopening with room to spare so we'll find that out um but more than that it it actually has been really good aside from the like stress of not knowing a lot of financial future just because it does it's like oh like real life again um so there's an insane amount of hard work that we're doing like we had to replace part of the floor because it got damaged during uh, the shutdown and um, some water dam. It's not a big deal, but like we had to do it. We're upgrading our HVAC of course for COVID safety. And it's all this like work stuff that we're doing, cleaning out the fridges, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then, you know, reconnecting with all their shows and all the performers that we hadn't seen before. And so, you know, over the last couple of weeks, we finally put tickets up for sale, which is super exciting. Um, so it it feels a bit like getting back to normal. And then of course everything has changed as well. So um a lot of comedy theaters, particularly improv and sketch comedy theaters in the city, had to close over over COVID, and so a lot of those performers formed a new company, and we are giving them a home here, which is very exciting. Um, so there's changes coming in as well, um, but yeah, it's honestly it's making me happy because we're doing we're doing the thing we want to do again instead of staying home and watching TV.
2: I know just the process of planning this proton prom show, which was a hybrid show has me so excited just to be on a stage and adjusting a microphone again. So I totally get it. And you know, my understanding is you're opening to a, a vaccinated clientele.
1: Yes. So again, we will know the answer to this by the time you hear this podcast, but um, we are definitely requiring uh, proof of vaccination for all attendees um, what we don't know is what our capacity will be. It might be, you know, forty people. It might be one hundred and forty. We we'll see.
2: Do you have any favorite shows?
1: Oh, all of them. They are all fantastic and the best shows.
2: Uh, of course, I know they're all like your children.
1: <laughs> um, that sounded way more sarcastic than I meant. I genuinely do love all of these shows. Um, but I'll I'll call out a couple. Um, Nagin Farsad is doing an hour of comedy, and I love her. Love her comedy, and I'm love getting smart stand-up back in here. Um, Vocabaret is sort of a, um, a variety show about words, which is fantastic. Your Love Musical, which is one of just the best shows. They they improvise uh, a musical out of a couple's, a real-life couple from the audience's love story. They interview them, improvise a musical. It's a beautiful, amazing, amazing show. And Risk is coming back. You know, uh, If you love storytelling podcasts, you probably know about Risk.
2: Oh, uh, Risk, a good friend of Story Collider. <laughs> the, the less sciency, uh, possibly sexier <laughs> friend of Story Collider. <laughs> it's in the name.
1: And we're doing an interactive theater uh, piece about a, a library of philosophy that is going to be incredible. That's new, and I'm very excited.
2: Awesome. Well, if you're in the New York City area and you're vaccinated, head down to Caveat. For our final story today, I wanted to share a story from the OG. This story is from Ben Lilly. It was recorded in December 2016 at Union Hall in Brooklyn.
1: In fifth grade, uh, when we walked in the door every day, the teacher would have written up on the board our schedule, 9 a.m., English, 10 a.m., social studies uh, 11 a.m. math and it would just go on and like that's how we'd know what we were doing for the day because fifth grade classroom you do all kinds of different things and so one monday i walk in and it says 9 a.m social studies 10 a.m social studies 11 a.m social studies noon lunch 1 p.m social studies 2 p.m social studies 3 p.m. Go home, <laughs> and that was the day. And we're all like, "Oh, something's gonna happen." Now, this did happen before. Um, our our fifth grade teacher liked to have us do these big classroom things, um, and so the the whole year was Wild West themed. Um, so they're always Wild West themed. I grew up in Oregon, so actually a lot of years were Wild West themed. But <laughs> so we. He would have us do these things, like like earlier in the year we had played uh, the Oregon Trail, like the video game, but like LARPing. And so like we had groups and uh, we had to like pick what we were putting in our wagons and try and get across the Oregon ter- territory. And it was great because like I had a team and like I wasn't the kind of kid who had a team. Like I wore uh, sweatpants to school every day. I didn't have a team, but for that I had a team. It didn't go well. We got stuck in the mountains and went all donor party. It was pretty bad actually, but um, but you know, Things like that were great. So when we, we walked in this day, we knew some kind of big activity was gonna happen. And we walk in and the teacher, Mr. Swanson, goes, all right, here's some cards. And he gave us all five cards. And this was Wild West themed. So on each of these cards was something Wild Westy, like a musket, or hardtack, or a fur. You know, like they had in the West. And. Uh, so we each got dealt five of these cards, and he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. This is a trading game. Your objective is to trade to make better value. I don't remember if he said value. Better something for yourself. And so, like, we were supposed to trade, and we were supposed to get points for the cards in our hand. And uh, they had different values. So, like, a musket was worth five, and a tack was worth two, but you could make sets. So, like, a tack was worth two, but three hardtacks was worth eight or something, I don't remember the actual numbers, but it was like, all right, so you need to trade with each other and make sets and get points, and this is gonna teach us something. (laughs) (laughs) And so he's like, all right, there's just a few more rules. He explained the whole rules of the game and then set us out to trade with each other. And we had like 10 minutes to trade and make sets and and get points, all right? Now, some of the rules were kind of weird. There was a whole bunch of them, but three of them were particularly odd. Um, the first rule was that if you were, uh, trading with somebody, you had to, you couldn't show them your hand. You had to tell them what you wanted. You had to tell them what you had to offer and they had to do the same. You couldn't just like look at each other's hands and decide what to trade. And like, you can sort of like, I, as a fifth grader, I couldn't have told you this, but you can sort of see how that makes sense. Like maybe, you know, learning the value of communication or like asymmetric information in interactions like economists might say something like that and um, <laughs> The second weird rule was that if you started trading with someone you had to trade You couldn't walk away from the trade and you couldn't trade the exact same thing You like had to make an actual substantive trade and the economists I've talked to about that tell me that that is all about about what what the what why would you do that? What? That doesn't mean anything. What is that? That's what they said. Um, and the third weird rule was that while you were trading with someone, you had to hold hands. I got nothing on that one. But so those were the rules, and we had 10 minutes. We got five cards. We had to trade and make the best thing that we could. We did it. And after that, you went up to Mr. Swanson, you showed him your hand, he said, all right, you got this many points, you're supposed to write that up on the board. And we're like, all right. And we sat down at our desks, and he's like, all right, we're gonna do that again. So we did it again. Cards, trade, hold hands, not be able to show each other, all that stuff, 10 minutes, show him points, all right. All right, we're gonna do it again. And we're gonna do it again. And we're going to do it again. And that is all we did that entire day is we just traded these cards. We got points. And it was sort of Wild West themed. And we're like, what is going on? But all right, fine. You know, we don't have to like do math or read or some of us liked, but some people in the class did anyway. We're just like, all right, fine. Uh, So we did that. And then we went home. And then we came back the next day. 9 a.m. Social studies. 10 a.m. Social studies. 11 a.m whole day like all right guess we're gonna do that again so we sit down and he deals out the deck and we we play a couple hands and he says all right we're gonna keep doing this we're gonna keep doing this all day but we're just gonna make uh we're gonna make one change Uh, a couple changes in fact so the first change is he said all right everyone look at the scores on the board and figure out who are the seven highest scoring kids in the class like all right so all right, also figure out who are the seven lowest scoring kids in the class. And then he says, get into groups. I was in the highest scoring group because obviously I'm brilliant. <laughs> or I got good cards. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Um, so we split into groups. And he says, all right, here's what you're going to do. And he had these uh, plastic uh, like conference name tag things where it's like a little plastic thing and you can stick a, something you've printed out in it. And he goes up to those of us in the highest scoring group and he says, here, you're going to wear these. And he gave us these little plastic things, and each of them had a green triangle. And he goes to the middle group, and he says, all right, you guys each get these, and he gave them an orange square. And he goes to the lowest scoring group, and he says, all right, you guys get these, you get a purple circle. He says, what you're going to do is you're going to wear these around school all day while we're playing this game. By the way, we're playing it all week. We're like, okay, so we put on our little name badges, and we were the green triangles and there was the orange squares and the purple circles and we wore these badges and if some of you are looking at me right now and you're going like wait a minute did he just say badges is this going to get really dark is this going to be like some lord of the flies shit yes because the other thing that changed was he said all right in between each trading round For five minutes, the green triangles can sit in a circle. It has to be unanimous, but as long as it's unanimous, you can make up any rule you want. Somebody over here just said, oh my God, which is correct. (laughs) And we're like, all right, we can make up any rule we want. So we sat in the circle, and the first thing we did, very first thing, we repealed all three of those stupid rules. Because why would you have those? Those were really dumb. And in retrospect, that's exactly what those rules were there for, they were there so we could remove them to legitimize our regime. (laughs) (laughs) The time it took us to go from that, from making an obvious rule that helped the whole class, to making the rule that because we were working so hard for everyone, we deserved an extra card, was just over 24 hours. And we did it, and we kept playing. Came in the next day, when we made that rule, social studies all day, and now people in the class are starting to go, ugh, I don't wanna be doing this, and all of us in the Green Triangle were like, yeah. Like, I had a team, I had a group, this was awesome. My other green triangles really loved it. We came in the next day after we made that new rule, Thursday, 9 a.m., social studies, 10 a.m., social studies. I'm like, yeah, this is fun. All right, we get to do more of this. My friend Mac, uh, who was an orange square, was like, no, I don't want to do this. I'm like, why not? It's fun. He's like, no, it's not fun. Lunch that day on Thursday, uh, we had been playing this game just over and over again. I go out to lunch. And a lot of days, um, my friend Mac and I, we would play this game uh, during recess called Wall Ball. It's pretty simple. You get a ball, you find a wall, you hit the ball against the wall. It's great, it's a great game, I recommend it. And, and Mac and I would play this and I, so I, on this Thursday, I found him and I, I said, hey Mac, you know I checked out the ball. And he's like, no, I don't wanna play. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And he says, what, what, are you, what are you talking about? Why would I want to play with you? And I'm like, what do you, what? And he's like, what you guys are doing is unfair. You, that rule is, is, is insane. There's other rules I've forgotten he was upset about. It. And I'm like, why are you upset? We're making everything better. We're working harder. He's like, no, you're not, you're not. And if it sounds like he's being very sharp for a fifth grader, he grew up to be a civil rights lawyer. Um, <laughs> he was very good. I didn't get it. And we argued and we, we, we like left and I went to find the other green triangles and get back in there in the afternoon, we're back in the class, dealing cards, trading cards. Now one rule we hadn't repealed was um, that the, the green triangles, that the power group, was the seven highest scoring people. And there was one of the orange squares had been getting enough points that they were gonna surpass one of the green triangles. Because even despite the extra stuff we had passed to make it easier for us, one of them, let's call him Scott, because I don't remember his name and I kind of hate Scott, sorry if there's one in the room. Um, (laughs) He hadn't been doing well. And uh, so we were talking about this. We're like, in a round or two, Scott's gonna go down and it's gonna switch. And someone's like, well, we have to pass a rule to make sure that doesn't happen. I was like, "Wait, wait, what? We have to do what?" And someone's like, "Yeah, we have to like stick up for our team." And so someone else says, "Well, what what should we do?" And we hadn't uh, changed the rule that it had to be unanimous. So we're all talking about this, and so someone says, uh, "Well, uh, we should just give them 100 points. 100 was a lot. We should just give them 100 points." I'm like, all right, we can do that. And and it goes around the circle, and everyone's like, "Yes, yes, 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 yes." It gets to me, and I'm like, "That that feels wrong." Like I'd, I'd been thinking about this thing Max said. Just the whole thing felt wrong. So I said, I don't think we should do that. And they got pissed they got angry. And they were like, what are you talking about? This isn't wrong. We have to protect our team. And another kid was like, we, we have to like stick together. I was like, it doesn't feel fair. And we were saying this out loud, and we're all in the same classroom as the other kids. So the rest of the class heard what we were talking about doing, and they started getting very pissed off because they should be. And they started yelling, and they started screaming, and they are coming towards us, and they're they're standing up, and they're screaming about fairness, and I'm listening to that, and I'm then the other green triangles are sitting here, and they're talking about how you used to stick up for your team. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And the one thing I knew, and I couldn't have put it in these words at the time as a, t- as a 10-year-old, but I knew that this was important. Like this decision was important because it would tell me the kind of person that I was. <laughs> Right? Was I the kind of person that stuck with my team and, and did the thing for the team? Or was I the kind of person who did what was right and what was fair and what was just? Or on the flip side, was I the kind of person who just wielded power for the sake of wielding it? and Because like, that was intoxicating. Or, and I can't come up with a bad thing for the other decision because it's clearly the right one. But, uh, <laughs> but like this decision mattered and like, would tell me who I was. And I'm sitting there trying to figure out what to do with everyone yelling at me. Now over the last couple of years, uh, I have spent a lot of time talking to two groups of people. One of them are people who understand stories and narrative. And they have taught me a lot of things like, for example, if you pause just before revealing a crucial bit of information, you can get through a lot of exposition. (laughs) The other group I've spent a lot of time talking to is neuroscientists. And one of the things neuroscientists tell you that is fascinating is that our memories do not behave the way we think they do. Not even close. They are very, very fragile things. So we think that something happens, and you record the memory like it's on a hard drive, and then every time you want to remember it, you just read it off the drive, right? I remember this thing, I remember this thing, I remember this thing. That's not what happens. It turns out when you remember something, you sort of crystallize it, and then or when when it happens, and then when you want to remember it, you pull it out of storage and it becomes this living thing that you think about as you remember it and then you put it back and then the next time you remember it, you're not really remembering that thing. You're remembering the last time you remembered it and then the next time you're remembering the memory of the last time you remembered remembering it and this keeps happening and every time you pull it out and then put it back you can kind of fuck with it, you can kind of twist it. (laughs) And little imperfections can go in. And so counterintuitively, the more you remember something, the less accurate the memory is. And we can distort the memories that we have by the way we tell it to people or the things people say to us as we are telling them the story or by who we want to be. And the other thing that both the neuroscientists and the narrative people tell me is that we tell stories about the things that we did in the past as a way of affirming who we are in the present and who we want to be in the future. We tell stories about ourselves as a way of establishing our own identity and our own sense of our goodness and our place in the world. So there are two endings to this story and you know what both of them are. I'm going to take you through them briefly. Ending one. I am sitting there. I don't know what to do. The green triangles are yelling at me about being part of the team. Everyone else is yelling at me about fairness. Finally, I say, no, we can't pass this rule. It's unfair. We have to not do it. I'm not voting yes. And the green triangles go nuts. They start screaming at me. The rest of the the class is relieved. Finally, one of us has done something right. There's all kinds of general chaos. And Mr. Swanson, the teacher, steps in and ends the game. And he says later, as we're all sitting in class, that this has been an exercise in what happens when one group gets unlimited power over another group. As you've all guessed, that was the point. He told us that, in fact, our year was one of the tamest, that sort of the least bad stuff happened (laughs) that year (laughs) compared to other years that he had done this. And in later years, I would both be grateful to him for having taught us that lesson and have deep reservations about the ethics of doing that to fifth graders. Like, seriously, what the fuck?
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: Ending two. I'm sitting there. The green triangles are yelling at me, saying you have to be part of the team. Everyone else is saying you know you have to do the thing that's fair. The green triangles saying this you have to be on our side. I say yes, you're right. I have to side with the team. We pass the rule. The guy gets us hundred points. Everyone else in the room starts going nuts. They start running at us. It looks like they're going to throw things. Mr. Swanson steps in, ends the game, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Exactly the same. Now here's the thing about that story. I have told it so many times. I have told it to people to tell them what a great person I am. I have told it to people to tell them what a horrible person I am. I have told it to myself in both ways. I have told it with all kinds of endings. I have no idea, no idea which of these is correct. <laughs> Absolutely none whatsoever. It was right about one thing though. I thought in that moment That this was important, that this moment would define who I was as a person. And I was correct. What I didn't know is that I would become a person who was obsessed with uncertainty and ambiguity and nuance and how it exists in the world. And what I finally realized Mr. Swanson was teaching us was that absolute power corrupts, not because of evil in the world or inherent badness, but because we all tell ourselves that we are the heroes of the story. And we don't know if that's true. Thank you.
2: That was Ben Lilly, physicist, story glider, co-founder, owner and operator of Caveat.
1: Yeah, this has been great. It is, it is, it's the same as reopening the space. It's like reliving old memories. It's the same but different.
2: Story Collider is so grateful to Sarah and Ben for sharing their stories, and we're obviously grateful to Ben for so much beyond that. Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, with assistance from Story Collider's Deputy Director, Nissa Greenberg, and Senior Podcast Editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board, our Operations Manager, Lindsay Cooper, and our Interim Executive Director, Leslie Griesbach-Schultz, without whom none of this would be possible. Our theme music is by Ghost. And of course, a huge thanks to Ben Lilly for joining me on the podcast today. Ben, do you want to do one of your thank yous for old time's sake?
1: big thank you to Littlefield and Union Hall for hosting these shows, to Vaccines for existing and getting us all back to normal, and to Coffee for always having been
2: here. Thanks for listening, everybody.